It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 298, The Healing at the Pool of Bethesda. Now we get to one of those Book of John-only moments where Jesus goes to Jerusalem. And it fascinates me how only John covers the pre-Passion Week visits to Jerusalem. And if you didn't catch it before, every real Jew in this time would visit Jerusalem for the three primary feast days, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. This event that we're about to cover was most likely Passover uh, the following year from the last visit, the John 3.16 visit, um, or it could technically be Tabernacles, considering what's going on, but I, I think it's pretty obvious it's the Passover because all of this occurs at the Sheep Gate. Um, but it's not completely clear, so it's kind of up for interpretation. John captures these moments because he's most likely, he most likely has a connection in Jerusalem. Some scholars even suggest he's a relation to the high priest, for he's never questioned about Jesus, even until the very end. And there's something about his age. He's super, super young. He's the youngest of the apostles, and he will clearly outlive all of them. So for dating purposes, and it's not perfect at all, we'll now shift to 28 AD. Um, The titles of the episodes have been 27 AD. Now we're at 28 AD. Not knowing exactly where this year cutoff is, but we do know that we've clearly entered into a um, another year of Jesus's ministry since the last visit to Jerusalem, which was the John three sixteen episode. All right, John five one. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. All right, this pool of Bethesda was near the Sheep Gate. (laughs) Need I say more, right? Behold the Lamb of God, but it's placed close to the temple. And it was once in a kind of chic part of town, but over time it's fallen into disrepair, Um, Even the status has gone down. It's become a place where the sick, the helpless hang out. But but there's a reason for this. And we'll hear later that this is a place of healing, actually. And Jesus approaches this guy, one of the, uh, I guess I would say invalids there. It's probably the wrong word for it. uh, One of the uh, cripples there. And it appears he comes to him quite discreetly at first. But we've got to talk about a, a mysterious missing verse Um, upcoming here in many of our Bibles. John 5, 4 doesn't exist in many of your Bibles. Open your Bible at home. John 5, 4 may not even be there. The NIV doesn't even have it. It goes from John 5, 3 to John 5, 5. And many others don't have it. King James has it and, and others. But here it is, King James, maybe New King James Version of John 5, 4. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool, stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. 
This verse is missing in many commentaries or, or many interpretations or, or uh, you know, types of Bibles. The reason for this is many of the original manuscripts of the Apostle John's letter or gospel have this verse and others do not. And I think the mixed message is quite intriguing. And, and perhaps uh, some of the manuscripts didn't want people to worship angels which is a danger, or perhaps someone didn't actually believe this was happening, but it's a mystery. Others interpret as the opposite. It was, it was not, it was a place of superstition. In, you know, considering the Pharisees of the day believed in, in angels, um, afterlife, um, the Sadducees didn't believe in angels. Um, they had a lot of, you know, issues with that. So you have this you know, dichotomy even going on in the religious class. Regarding what you should do with the fact that this verse is missing, it's up to you. I mean, personally, I lean towards the supernatural, not away from it, because this is biblical history, not man's history. And I hope that makes sense to the listeners out there. We worship God who's outside of our dimension, our time and space. We should never remove the supernatural purposely because it doesn't make sense to us right? God is beyond our understanding because he's God. And let's never disconnect the supernatural. Angels are his servants, and there's over 300 angel references in the Bible. And that's why, you know, I lean towards, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to want that verse in the Bible, right? Um, angels have power to kill, ask Sennacherib. Angels have the power to heal, per the scene. Angels have the power to prophesy, ask Mary. Angels have the power to preach, per revelation. Angels have incredible power. Probably the best book ever written on angels that I know of was actually written by Billy Graham. And let's say the fact that there can be an angel that does stir the waters in the scene and brings healing. Well, why not? Considering how horrid medical health care was back then and how corrupt the priesthood was. Healing was supposed to come through the priesthood. Call it God's grace that in Jerusalem there was a place where people could find their healing under the nose of the religious and the political class. A grungy place under the shadow of the temple that God would visit to bring healing to his people. Under the wings of the temple where true healing should have been coming through. For this reason, I just have to believe this is the case. And at the same time, there's the danger of angel worship and things like that, especially with fallen angels coming in disguise. And this is probably, I would guess, the reason why it was pulled from many of the original manuscripts. Um, for an immature believer can fall prey to lying angels so quickly. After all, that's what the devil is. He's a fallen angel. Okay, all that being said, um, Jesus comes to show his healing touch. God himself in the flesh almost confirming or coming through and providing the hand of God in the scene too. We have to remember in this scene that this is the sheep gate too. Um, all the symbolism just points to Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And, and that would be another reason why um, angels providing healing could be a distraction, right? Um, but John 10, 7 says this, Therefore Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. 
I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So interesting enough, at the context of this verse, um, coming from John 10, uh, but it almost indirectly explains what's going on here in John 5. He's the only way. He's the only way. And the devil brings death and destruction. Healing and life are from Jesus. And what I love about this story is how he heals first, then he brings salvation, and then he launches into what it means to be the Lamb of God and what he'll do right under the nose of the Pharisees and, of course, the shadow of the temple itself. He is under a portico of the temple itself, speaking of his time under the earth after his death at a spring-fed pool filled with death and healing at the same time. Jesus does layers, layers of storytelling, sometimes without even telling us what he's doing. He just acts it out, and we have to pick these pieces out and see the fuller revelation of what these messages are. John 5, 5. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that when he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. The man was an invalid, it says, for 38 years. That number's interesting. And three can be synonymous with the word fully, as the fullness of God is in the Trinity. Three and one, we are three and one, body, soul, spirit. Eight is the number of new beginnings. This man, this nameless man, has entered into a fully new beginning as he picked up his beggar's mat and walked. The mat that he technically had um, a license to carry would have associated him as a beggar, which allowed him to collect alms for the poor or the handicapped. And, and I think at this stage, he should have given his mat to the officials because no longer was he um, a handicapped um, person um, because he was healed. John 5, 9. The day on which he, this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat, because they considered it work. But he replied, The man who made me well said, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick up and walk? The man who has, was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away in the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. The scene puzzles me. And I imagine he was probably stealing from people or he was acting like a beggar when he wasn't one anymore for this was all he knew. For he never really worked a day in his life, most likely. Stealing and begging was all that he knew. And Jesus' reference to sin would probably apply to eternal life as well as or just general sin that he resumed committing. Now word spreads, and I get the feel this is not a grand spectacle like we're going to have later. Uh, there's no reference to the other disciples, and the Pharisees are a smaller group here harassing Jesus, but they're here. 
The discussion goes down the standard book of John route, a message we see over and over, Jesus having the authority of the Father, only doing what the Father God was doing. The Father and the Son are one, except that he talks this time about the grave, which is astounding. And it blows my mind because the more I read the Gospels and teach it this time through, I realize how much he already knows. He knows he's going to go to the cross. That's abundantly clear. He knows he's going to take, you know, he's going to defeat, you know, sin and death. And he's going to take the keys back to the kingdom all at once. But he knows the sequence and the order. He probably, you know, all these things are about to happen. He speaks, he prophesies. For some reason, he seems at times blinded um, by a ministry moment. Like he's got to wait for God to tell him how to pray for the blind man or something like that. But all these other major events, they're all known. He's got it all mapped out. He's already got it all figured out. But he sometimes operates like a man to show us how to operate. But he's all-knowing and he's fully God and fully man. It's complicated, it's confusing, and it's so much fun to study and watch. He knows full well everything, at least the major events that will happen in the next two to three years, every detail. John 5.16, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always working at this day to this very day, and I too am working. And for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to them he pleases to give it to. Therefore the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus now goes down a route of prophecy. And it's something he'll do between his death and resurrection. It's super astounding the details that we're about to get. And imagine in the context of this scene at the the pool of Bethesda. And there's a shadow of the temple and the Pharisees arguing with them and they want to kill him. And he says what he says about preaching to the dead. John 5, 24, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent him has eternal life. It will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming, has now come, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he will be given authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Don't be amazed, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. For myself, 
by myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. These actual verses from the lips of Jesus tell us how he went down to the grave to pull up those who died before he pays the ultimate price. Well, this is hard to understand. It's called Abraham's bosom from Luke 9, Luke 16, 19. Or it's the kind of the verse about Sheol um, in Ephesians 4. It has a whole it's like it's a holding place for the souls of those who previously died before the resurrection. Where Jesus would come and pull them in a form of early rapture of the dead to heaven itself. It's funny that Jesus was thought to be a gardener by Mary, for he had just come up from the ground in the place of the dead to raise them to life eternal. It's absolutely hard to understand, but it really really is. But Jesus himself says it here under the nose of the Pharisees, under the shadow of the temple, right by the sheep's gate. He declares he is the only way. Let's end this episode um, with kind of what happens next. Um, I, I'm just I'm just kind of blown away by the symbolism here. It, it's clearly Passover because we're at the sheep's gate. Um, it's a year later, you know. John six John three sixteen was the year before that, um, and here's Jesus symbolically saying the same thing, and he even. The first visit to Jerusalem, he speaks salvation. The second visit to to Jerusalem, he reveals what will happen after he dies. So Jesus heads back to Galilee, almost like a victorious procession. Matthew 9 speaks of the wide-sweeping ministry he has, um, and, and, and then a prayer he leaves with his disciples. He goes back, and then I leave you with a question in this episode. Matthew 9, 35. Jesus went through all the towns in Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. We end this episode with a question. Jesus asked the disciples to pray a prayer, that God would send out workers into the harvest field. Do you think the apostles prayed it? And furthermore, how do you think God will answer it? Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to check out the website, messagetokings.com, or if you want to chat or connect with us. 
email us at message to kings at gmail.com.